you're listening to Ghosted in West Virginia. Obsessed, oppressed, and possessed, I am your humble, handsome host, Alec McCann, and with me as always is my beautiful wife, Julia. Woohoo! I love hearing your name, baby. We had a very good day today. Um, before we jump right into it, and tonight we have a very creepy story to tell you, and yes, I realize you know, we enjoy the more comedic aspect of our show, you know, hamming it up is still our favorite episode, all because of the, the river pirates. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we do enjoy the comedic things, but uh, <clears throat> tonight's going to be a little bit different. Uh, normally we would save the darker episodes for our Patreon, uh, but we're going to switch it around this week. Um, if you want to hear what we have going on on Patreon, we're looking up the uh, the... Uh, crap, we're looking at the origins of fairies, and I know what you're thinking, fairies, really gross, but they're actually really interesting, like the history of them is really cool, and Julia did all the research on that, so. <clears throat> they are pretty cool. Yeah, um, and before we get into our, our tale, our dark evening, really. I've done so good. Our, our dark evening, uh. We are going to tell you about a little girl named Olive Miller. She is a very, very brave girl. Uh, she's 11 years old. Um, she's been diagnosed with leukemia, a pretty aggressive form of leukemia. Um, the doctors have her taking five, five chemo yep. treatments at, at the same time, yeah. simultaneously. Yep, um, a lot. She's not able to live at home. She can visit home intermittently, like for once. For two days for at two a time. Day, for two days at a time. Uh, and that's due to, you know, the environment that she's in. Um, needing to be pretty... Sterile. Sterile, yeah. Um, but the family, family didn't ask for money. Uh, they didn't want money. All they really wanted was care packages and cards sent to Olive and... and uh, you know prayers, but um, they want they want to make sure that she's able to face this with her chin up and, and a smile on her face. Um, so we're asking our listeners if you'd be so kind uh, to send a care package to 1215 Lee Street, Charlottesville, Virginia, zip code two two nine zero three, and address it to Olive Miller uh, to make sure it, it gets to her uh, at the UVA Medical Center. Um, and not only that, but uh, our podcast, uh, Ghost in West Virginia, we set up a GoFundMe. Um, only set it at $1,000. Right now it's at 300 so we need a little bit of a push uh, just to give them a little bit of breathing room since she's going to be in a hospital for, what is it, a year? A year, yeah. Living in the hospital a year. Uh, it's medical expenses, you know, a whole bunch of stuff that... Food. They shouldn't, have, they shouldn't have to deal with. 
but they're eventually they're going to have to. But I'd like to, uh, we'd like to give them some uh, breathing room. So um, <clears throat> if you are interested, go to GoFundMe and look up Olive Miller Relief um, and donate. It doesn't matter how much you donate; every little bit helps. Uh, the family is now fully aware of it. Uh, I had to get their permission before I set it up. Uh, but they they did not set it up. Uh, this is being run through the podcast, through our, our Haunted Marital Productions. And uh, just, uh, if you can, give to give to Olive. Give, give to that family so they can get some breathing room as they go into this. Uh, you have anything you want to say, hon? No. She's very talkative, as always. <laughs> All right, so tonight we are delving into a very, a very dark tale. Uh, it starts out pretty dark and then just gets darker and darker as time goes on. Uh, it's, it's pretty, um, wow. <laughs> Sorry. You know, one of the hazards of recording in your closet like we do is we have a water heater in here, and it just drips water nonstop. Uh, it's going to cause a lot of water damage, probably some mold, you know. It's a good thing we're in here recording and not the children. Probably no floor, so... Probably no floor. It'll it'll fall through into the ground. Uh, so, if you want to help, go to our Patreon... <laughs> And support that. You'll get a whole bunch of content that you didn't have before. Uh, there's um, our episode on the Basilica Axe murders, which was really good. Then we have an episode with the kids. Um, there's like a 30-second video uh, not documenting what had happened that night, but telling you. Because like we started recording as soon as we got in the closet when that thing opened our door whatever it was that night we were we weren't even watching anything scary i don't think we had done an episode or anything had we, we? watch it fixer upper yeah so you know that doesn't lend itself to oh my goodness we're going into hysterics but something opened our door and it was weird but um we you know so you you'll get a little bit of that and uh you'll see how we how we make the episodes and and stuff um there's three tiers Obsessed, oppressed, and possessed. Uh, so check it out. See what you want to do. And with that, allow us to go to Bridgeport, Connecticut. You ready, Jules? Yes. Travel back in time. Now, full disclaimer. Will it catch the water? It might, but it'll also make noise. Is it dripping on that box? No. Yeah, that ain't catching nothing. Oh, well. We tried. Um, so, we're traveling back in time. <clears throat> and uh, we have a whole bunch of stuff. Now, this disclaimer, the Warrens are involved in this case. Uh, I tried to find a haunting that you know, would have a giant big story behind it that they weren't involved in. Turns out it's a little harder than I thought. Yeah, they're everywhere. Yep. But uh, the reason I said disclaimer is because I'm not a fan of psychics. 
Uh, Julia believes in them, I think. Somewhat. And I just fully discredit it. Um, I don't. I don't think they're real. I don't think they truly see things. Or I mean, you can feel things. Normal people can feel things. But you didn't for a while. I. I. I didn't think anything was there. Maybe it's a case that you have to start believing in order to probably feel it. But I don't. I don't feel like. I mean, I'm never gonna be like, oh, eight, six, seven, two, four. Bingo! You know? Uh, which, if I was a psychic, that's how I would try and use those powers. That's why you're not. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's a natural thing for a human to do is try and get one leg up on the world. Um, so in November 1974, uh, the street known as Lindley in Bridgeport, Connecticut became the focus of an under-the-radar haunting that is, even to this day not talked about very much um there's one book that i could find one book we had it so that was good yeah uh, i've watched a whole bunch of there is one podcast that did this before but it was more of a tell the story versus give you all the information type thing um so uh, i did but i did a, a lot of i think this is the most research i've done and it's not even finished yeah, uh, you have been working a long time. Yeah, yeah, I have been working a long time on it. Uh, but I was I was so excited to do this because, hey, this is a legit haunting that has... Uh, I mean, the reason it's so interesting and hard to ignore is how many people witnessed it. Uh, not only did, you know, friends and family see this stuff, but, like, more than two dozen firemen and cops all say they saw this stuff and uh it's important to note that the uh goodens who uh this story is about who were getting haunted they did not take a dime from anybody they didn't want money uh the author of the book tried to pay them and they were like no we just need people to understand what was happening because it still emotionally affects them today. Are they still alive? Uh, can't really get to that yet. Uh, okay. I imagine the parents are not, but the daughter more than likely is, because oh. she was only 11 in the 70s. Okay. So. Uh, I guess that really wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. My my mom was born in the 70s. Tail end of 70s, but she was she was mm. born in there, so. Um, so only about like 40 some years ago. Oh okay. no. Pretend mom, mom, pretend I didn't do that. If you're, if you're <laughs> listening, pretend I didn't just say that. Um, so, you know, the backstory to the hauntings, uh, it's, it's filled with tragedy and, uh, and heartbreak. So buckle up. Uh, this will especially hit home with, uh, viewers that have children of a, uh, physical or mental handicap uh, so just uh, just buckle up <clears throat> Gerard and Laura Gooden uh, they were married in February of 1960 and immediately were able to purchase a small house in Bridgeport Connecticut nice a little, little rancher um, and they you know, they saw it as a good a good place to start their own uh, thing their own family but they weren't expecting to have a baby yet. 
they were not they when they bought the house they weren't expecting. They were just two married couples, and they weren't like planning on having kids. It wasn't like they were against having kids. They just it hadn't crossed their mind yet. Um, Jerry, everybody described him as a down to earth kind of man of faith. That you know he didn't put much stock in the paranormal. Uh, his faith did not include the more mystical side of Christianity. So. Angels, demons, yes, at one point they existed. Maybe they exist still, but they don't affect the normal world. Uh, Laura was of Native American descent, and she was very proud of that fact. Uh, but despite that, she grew up as a loner, um, and, and she had trouble making friends. Uh, <clears throat> but then she met Jerry, and apparently they hit it off like, like they had known each other for a good long time. Huh. That's usually how it works. But it is interesting that Laura had trouble making friends and was a loner, and you'll see why in a little bit. Uh, but just keep that in mind, that Laura, as growing up, was a loner. While they hadn't been looking to, like I said, uh, they had their first baby, their first child, on Halloween Day, 1961. Aww. So take away 1961, and that's my birthday. Uh, Halloween Yay. baby. They named him Gerard J. Gooden Jr. My goodness. What a name. I don't even know what the J stands for. They, they do not say what the J stands for. But if I had to guess, I'd say Jerry. Or maybe James. Or John. <laughs> or any other J name that exists. Joaquin. Maybe. Because Joaquin is a J name. Right. Uh, um, they... But they had this baby, and they couldn't have been happier. However, the neighbor noticed that Junior's head was drooping forward a whole bunch and suggested that maybe they get that looked at. And the fact that they did this, the fact that they actually, later on, maybe not in this episode, but, uh, oh, by the way, this episode's probably going to be a two-parter, um, just to let you know, because there is a lot of information, and I haven't even gone through it all yet. That's why I said the notes aren't finished. Um but uh, the neighbor saw the head drooping and said, you know, get this checked out, and they did. But when I tell you what happened later uh, on, you're going to be like, what? Really? So they got the child checked out, but they're refusing this? But you'll understand, okay. I'm sure. Um, but they, they got him checked out, and it turns out the kid had cerebral palsy. Uh, and so, you know, they they immediately went from being just parents to being caretakers, which is a lot different. Yes. It is a much different job from, you can be a parent, but your kid will grow up and become independent from you. This uh, diagnosis that he had, this is back in the 60s. You know, they didn't have cochlear implants and things that kids can get now to help them. I don't know if cochlear implants help with that. I think... I, I had a I had a friend. I don't know if you'd even call her a friend. I uh, I had a person who acquaintance I guess acquaintance um, who she had cerebral palsy and uh, or she has and um, she had some sort of implant in put into her head so that she could kind of normalize. Huh. She was never never perfect, but uh, she was she was able to normalize um 
but you know when when they were asked about it you know when they were talking about uh junior gerard would say he was always a well-dressed baby we we bought clothes in advance of his needing them at one point two station wagons full which nice. two station wagons they had two cars and and a house right after they got married and a baby so they were pretty well off. Well, it's not even that they were well off. It was just easier. Yeah, definitely. Um, and eventually that, that does that does stop. Uh, the financial success does stop. But um, he goes on to say, anything we could do to please the child, we did. We did without for him. We spoiled him, and yet he was not a spoiled child. As long as we were able to, we would gladly take care of him, and we would gladly do without. Meaning they were, you know, whatever they could good give parents. up. They, yeah, they were good parents. Um, they applied for financial help to aid with their care of their son, but were denied access to it because they owned their house. So these people are taking care of themselves, taking care of a baby. They are on a decent financial footing, and the government said no. That's... Such is life. Well, I mean, that's just bull, though. It is. That's ridiculous. You're out here helping people that aren't helping themselves, that aren't trying to help their children, that are only looking for a free dollar. And these people, they needed help. Because, all right, he's got cerebral palsy. He has to go to the doctor frequently. Right. The brace that they got for him was $500. Now, that's back in 1960. You got to think about what's going on now. How much is that now? A lot. That's a lot now. So back then, it was a lot then. Then they had a chair, uh, a wheelchair for him for $75. So they've spent $575. That's not including including tax that you have on those items. Then, from 1961 to 1967, Junior would have to make multiple doctor visit trips. Not to mention just normal sickness trips. And each visit to the doctor, when Gerard was born, the visit uh, you paid 154 each doctor visit. At the time of his death, you were paying $253 each visit. And all they needed was some help. But they couldn't get it. It's awful. And keep in mind, Laura is not working at this time. She's not I mean, working. How could she? Yeah, she's not working. So it's all on Gerard, who we will switch to calling Jerry soon. But, um, yeah, it's, it's all on him. And that's a, that's a hard, a hard burden to carry. So, you know, all this, and then they, they're in the middle of all this great stress and strife. And then life just, just pours salt onto the wound when Laura's mother comes to live with them because her brother, for some reason, was unable to look after her anymore. Oh, my. I don't know how old her brother is, but that sounds like he was shirking. Right? I tried to find out. I tried to find articles and stuff that said why he wasn't able to take care of them, but there was nothing. Uh, And there is also no mention of when she passed. 
The mother? The mother. But I do believe she passed before uh, before the haunting began. Maybe it was her. No. 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 Uh, I have my suspicions on what it is. I haven't gotten to that part yet. Um, but uh, I do have my suspicions on what's going on. And you will, too. As soon as, as, soon as I say a certain part, you'll be like, oh, okay. Yeah, I see what's happening here. Um, so Jerry Jr. continued to always be with his parents. They had had a room for him, but since her mother came to live with them, they moved him back into their room and they were fine with that. You know, I'm sure they were probably anxious, worried about him. True. You know, but, um, they never hired a babysitter. Never, never. He was always going to be with one of them, if not both. Uh, then in 1967, he went to go pick out a car with them. Nice. Um, and, and he got very excited about a new station wagon. Uh, and they took the station wagon while he was, he was, uh, seven. Um, and they were, they went to a family vacation, uh, in Massachusetts. That's fun. Yeah. Unfortunately, Jerry caught a cold. Uh, Jerry Jr. caught a cold. And, um... As the cold worsened, his parents rushed him to the hospital. I don't know. I don't know if they went back home because Massachusetts isn't that far from Connecticut, as no. far as I know. I don't think. I don't it think is. so. And depending on, I can't imagine they'd go super far away um, from home just in case. Yeah. So it was probably like right across the border or something. I, it doesn't say where in Massachusetts they went. I don't think it was very important. But they they rushed him to the hospital back at their own hometown, um, and every test that the doctors ran came back negative. They had no idea what was going on, and yet his condition just got worse. Weird. Uh, and its peak was when he reached a fever of 109. It's pretty high. That's not just pretty high. That's melted. Yeah. That's cooked. That's scary. Um, and uh, unfortunately, he would never recover. Um, and, and the end was the clearly nigh. So they reached out to Mark Grimes, a, a Catholic priest, uh, to give the sacrament of confirmation. And, and basically what that is, is, um, uh, babies in the Catholic faith are baptized for sins long ago. That they didn't even do. Yeah. Uh, it's, I don't, well, it's, it's a hard concept to understand because it doesn't really make any sense. To each their own. Yeah. Um, to each their own, but, uh, basically it just reaffirms that baptism. Um, uh, then a few days later, September 27th, 1967, with tears silently streaming down his face, Jerry Jr. passed. How sad. Yeah. Uh, now nothing paranormal had ever happened at this point, and even a little bit after, uh, it, it doesn't happen. You know, they're just living their normal lives. Uh, on the burial day, Mark Grimes, a trained Catholic priest. Now, these people are supposed to be trained in sensitivity and caring. He comes up to them at the burial site and asks them if they've ever thought about adoption. Nice. Yeah. Um, it, it, he, he, he was involved in an adoption company. Or agency, I guess they should be called. Yeah. And he just thought that they'd be a good match. Still not very nice. Yeah, but uh, like normal people, they were like, dude, not the right time. 
not the right time. And you can see, you know, shortly after burying their son, in fact, the very next day, the Goodens had another medical emergency that they had to deal with. Laura had to get a hysterectomy. Oh, that sucks. Uh, she had she had already had it uh, planned before the burial. Mm. Uh, they didn't know they were going to be burying anyone when she planned it. Right. But they had found a tumor in her nethers. And um, they uh, the doctors said that if she were to have more children, chances are they would more than likely have Junior's condition still. Um, and uh, she didn't want that. And there was also a growing fear that uh, her tumor would become malignant so the operation had to move forward uh and when they she she stayed in the hospital for a good bit and jerry would visit junior's grave every day and then when she was able to she would join him to go to the grave and they did that and they had like a shrine in the living room to him and then one day she Laura looks at the living room and just decides enough's enough. We need to move on. We need to get going with life. Um, and uh, so she eventually they contact Grimes and, and say, hey, we're, we're ready to look at adoption. We're ready to think about adoption. And he put them in touch with an agency and they started looking. They started the process because Laura said a home without a child is not a home. I can understand that. As a mom, I, I get that. I disagree. I disagree. I think a home. It's you're is, a dad. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Dads okay. Don't care. It's not that we don't <laughs> care. It's that we just. It, there's a certain. Look at what we did today. It was we, nice. We were a happy married couple. Which don't get me wrong, we are always a married couple, but not always happy because sometimes. Blended families are hard. Well, not just that, but children in general are yes. hard. Oh man, they are just hard. And so I could I could see a home without a child. It it'd be okay with me. You got puppies? It's you got, not you got the same. Uh, you're right. It's a little less stressful. It is, I don't I don't but... have to put my dog through sports. I don't have to figure out where my child's gonna go to college because they need to. Or or, you know, all this other stuff. Yeah. But uh, you know, uh, on the whole, it is worth it. it. Yeah, yes. it's still worth it. But but I also wouldn't make such a blanket statement because some people just don't want kids. That's true. But for her, that's how it was. Yeah, for her, that's how it was. And that's fine. Um, so, May 1968, they get the call. And really, it's Laura that gets called. She answers it and they say, hey, we've got a little girl here um, who... Is ready to be adopted. She's in Ontario, Canada. She is full-blooded Seneca Indian. And uh, would you like to come get her? And Laura called Jerry. And he said, what? Get the... Yeah! And he went around. He, he was so proud. He only had 30 or 40 bucks in his pocket. That's not getting into Canada. But thankfully... With the support of his community, they all gave him like a hundred bucks, awesome. and that got him up to Canada and back. They had a little girl named Marcia, and the Goodens loved her immediately. 
Now, Marcia was, a, uh, when they got her, she was about four, maybe three and a half. I can't remember which. I believe it was four, though. Um, <clears throat> I will say that's a terrible age of children. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's like the worst. Well, uh, now, Jerry had promised her while on the way home that he would build her her own room. And he set about doing that immediately. And they were just, they were just thrilled. They had a whole family again. Awesome. And, um, you know, Marcia's family history was, was more complicated than I think the Goodens were prepared for. Um, she was the youngest of nine children. And uh, she'd already lived through harrowing experiences that included being tied to a chair for long periods of time. Uh, and, and she also emotionally had to deal with being the only child that the family forfeited. That's awful. Yeah, she was the, the only one. Everybody else stayed. Um, the agency, however, picked the Goodens because of Laura's Native American background. And, and, and Laura was so proud that her child was a Native American, too. You know, like, she yeah. was like, this is a Native American. This is, this is who I'm proud of. The one fault that they had raising Marcia was that they were a smidge overprotective. Especially Laura. Um, and due to the overprotectiveness, Marcia she started to resent Laura the most. She started seeing Laura as her jailer because she couldn't have friends over. She couldn't she, she had adults at her birthday parties and not mm -hmm. children. Like, she was like, this is not a life. Now, on the flip side, she was a daddy's girl. She was Jerry's little darling. Oh. And, and Most he, girls are. Yeah. I mean, that's how it goes. But, um, you know, they, they have her in private school. But... They start getting bogged down with finances. Now, remember, this is this is not the 60s anymore. This is the 70s. So inflation has happened. You know, uh, we've seen a significant rise in inflation in our gas yeah. and, and, and things like that. So we can understand how, how finances can really get screwed up, even if you are working yourself to the bone to provide for your family. Uh, Marcia had to transfer to public school. And soon after, uh, she was met with some really cruel racism. I said cruel. I want you all to know I did not say cool racism. I said cruel. Cruel. Kids that saw her called her ape. Uh, and e this is other kids of r other races, too. Kids like, it's, it's not just white kids. It's... it's well, the only other kids they had there were black kids. I do not believe there was a, a large Latino community in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, but, you know, so she, she had, you know, uh, one kid kicked her in the groin so hard that it caused serious injury. So at that point, uh, you know, this, this was the environment that they were trying to protect her from. This right here. And it just goes to show that you, you can't protect your children from the world. Yeah. You want to. Believe you and me, if I could stop some of the things that happened to our kids at the at school. Even, it's not even physical things, but it's just, it's, it is emotionally 
hard for Jacob to deal with someone calling him a weirdo that isn't his family. And, and for, well, I mean, the stuff that was happening to Ryan was not okay at yeah. all. Not even a little bit. But, um, you know, you also can't protect them all the time. Unfortunately. However, the Goodens would try. October 21st, 1974, they pulled Marcia from school and hired a private tutor for her to continue her schooling. Now, I need you to remember that date, 1974, because that is the date that the public was made aware of the hauntings. The year? The year, 1974, is the day, or is the date, is the year that the public in Bridgeport became aware of the haunting. Okay. Um, and remember, they picked her up in 1968. So, um, then you have, uh, you know, you have all this pain. Uh, by all accounts, Marcia was a, was a sweet girl who internalized her pain quietly. She didn't talk about it. She didn't really cry. Uh, you know, um, and honestly, there does, and a lot of this stuff I found, there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect for her uh, in dealing with some of this stuff that she's got. Um, <clears throat> objects, so the haunting starts almost immediately after they get to the home. Uh, they start having objects go missing, and then they turn up where they didn't belong. Um, originally, Jerry and Laura thought it was just them being absent-minded and doing it, but then the more it went on, the more they were like, this this doesn't seem right. right. This doesn't seem like human error anymore. You know, whether or not they thought it was a ghost, I'm guessing probably not, since Jerry's described as a dude that doesn't, right. he doesn't futz around with it. Um, but Marcy gained a friend in 1969. She did have one friend, Rose Marie Hoffman. Um, she would frequently, frequently come over to the Goodens' house because their parents played cards together. And when it started out, Marcy was quiet, withdrawn. She didn't talk to her much. When she would come over, they would just sit on opposite ends of the couch and watch TV, not really talking. Uh, and then one day, uh, <clears throat> one day, they're sitting on the opposite ends of the couch, like they do, and the car, the couch starts to shiver, and then only Rosemarie's side starts to lift off the ground. Nice. And the more she reacts to it, like the more she's like freaking out about it, the higher it goes until eventually it just gently floats back down to the ground. That's weird. Now she's like, what the crap? She turns and looks at Marcy. Marcy is astounded. She's like, whoa. And she's got a nervous look on her face, like a nervous smile. But to Rosemarie, that woman is smiling at me. What did she do right. to cause this? So... She <coughs> she runs in to tell the adults, and the adults are just like, oh, listen to you, scamp, trying to get attention. Go on now. Go on. We're playing cards. We don't have time to deal with your, your paranormal incident. <clears throat> I wonder if they ever looked back on this after everything that happened. I wonder if they ever looked back on this moment and were like, man, we were jerks. Probably. So after this incident, the two, they just became normal friends. You know, and and what precipitated was Marcy showed Rosemary her unusual amount of teddy bears. Uh -huh. She had giant 
amount of teddy bears, a big old collection. And the reason she had a big old collection is because she didn't have friends. So these were her friends. And she would make them talk. She had become very skilled at making them talk. Mm. She had shown Rosemary all of this stuff, how she could make them talk and all this stuff. And uh, it just solidified to Rosemary that Marcia needed her friendship. So she just decided we're going to be friends. Well, good. Um, Several times, Rosemary would come over and find Marcia sitting crisscross applesauce, as you say, uh, (laughs) on the floor rocking back and forth, speaking in a strange language. Rosemary asked her what she was doing, and her response was so strange that reading it, I said, nope, nope, that is that is not what she is doing. That would be weird. Uh, because she told Rosemary that she was speaking to her grandfather. He was a well-respected chief and had been the only one to fight the adoption of Marcia, but he didn't win. She hated that she was the only one to be given away, and she missed him. Did he... Was he dead? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't say whether he was dead or not, but it says... She said that whenever she wanted to talk to him, whenever she wanted to talk to him, she had to follow this exact bizarre ritual. So... Oh, no! She sneezed! Phew! Oh! Phew! Okay. Um... But, you know, she also, she doesn't say whether or not he died, but she did say that he was very upset with the Goodens for taking her. So that is where my suspect lies, that something has been sent or something. don't mess with Native Americans. No. Well, I mean, not only that, but, you know, in this story, none of them do anything. To, you know, normally these stories are precipitated by she was playing with a Ouija board or doing some sort of spirit session or what have you. And all that Marcia was doing was something that I'm guessing she had been taught in her culture to do. uh, Or something was following her around and said, this is how you do it. I don't know. Uh, They don't really get into the specifics of that exact uh, situation. Uh, So in 1971... The Exorcist novel is released. And then in 1973, the movie was released. And in between that haunting, or in between that, the haunting of the Goodens became more focused. In 1972, the Goodens made a call to the police uh, to complain about a rhythmic pounding that was happening. Man, you can't even, you can't even make a, I can't even make a pounding right. uh, on this this awesome dresser. But um, it, it was a, a, a rhythmic pounding. And actually, this is the second time they called. Uh, they called once more in November in 1971 uh, and claimed that it sounded like the house was being stoned. Oh. Bruh. And, uh, <laughs> it's creepy. Um, now, they weren't scared at first. They were just like, you know, screw this, dude. They were just annoyed, and they wanted the city to somehow make this noise stop. Jerry believed it was some neighbor kids, you know, being jerks. Um, plus, the noises had started soon after Halloween, so they kind of figured maybe it was just like a prank that it was going on too long. Uh, <clears throat> but then, you know, life brought that suspicion quickly uh, to an end. Um the knocks came, you know, soon, all hours of the day. That's aggravating. Yeah. Aggravating. Aggravating. <laughs> it's aggravating. Aggravating. 
Um, they started as light tappings and then became violent bangings. When Jerry would call his wife, he could hear the house rattling yeah. because of the bangs. Uh, so they called John Holsworth, a friend of theirs who was also part of the police uh, department in Bridgeport, to, to come over and like just look at it, you know, you know. And he said, "How about you make a recording?" Of the bangings so that the police can better identify what's going on. So around 3 a.m., John and Jerry set up the equipment. And then the bangings start at 5.20 a.m. Oh. Uh, so 3 a.m., then 5.20 a.m. They started in the kitchen. And then seemingly they followed John and Jerry as they went through the house. So whatever room they were in, that's the sound it seemed to come from. That's creepy. The uh, soon after this, a neighbor that Jerry believed was a was part of the problem. Uh, he moved away, and then the banging stopped. And they're like, "Oh, okay, here we go. That was the problem. Thank goodness." However, their relief was short lived because the noises started again, and frustration and anger were raiding. <laughs> radiating from the Goodens at this point. You know, firemen came, they checked the foundations, checked the basement, the surrounding neighborhood, the gas lines, the plum, plumbing lines. You know, they were unable to find the source of a noise, and it seemed that the Goodens, they were just helpless to prevent this pervasive, constant noises. And Jerry, eventually, he just, you know, he came to think that maybe the proposal to build a condominium had something to do with it. Uh, a proposal that the Goodens had vocally opposed. They were like, screw you, dude, nah! <laughs> and so Jerry, you know, if, keep in mind, these are probably keeping them up at like night. Right. So Jerry ha is starting to lose his mind just a little bit. And he's like, I tell you what they're doing. They're making all these noises so they can drive all the people out and then buy up their properties for cheap. And it's like, uh, okay, I could see that that would be happening, but... Um, when you don't get sleep, you get crazy. Yeah. Uh, and when they, when they, when people started hearing that, you know, these people were going through bangings in their house, uh, they all, a lot of people that didn't know the good ones questioned their integrity, and if it wasn't their integrity they were questioning, it's their sanity. Mm. Um, however, you know... The Holsworth came to bat for the good and saying they would never engage in any kind of hoax fabrication. And it, it did help that the the noises did seem to originate from inside the house with no known cause. Uh, they checked for animals stuck in the piping. They checked for bubbles in the piping. There was nothing. The pounding, and, and here's the thing, the pounding would stop for like two weeks lulling the again. yeah well the, they would lull the goodens into thinking oh thank goodness it's, it's we can done. we can we can relax and then boom one day boom 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 and you just be like oh my that's awful uh, so um i'd always be afraid someone was like in my walls yeah living but uh city officials authorities they just they just gave up they're like we don't know what to do we're sorry uh we have no help to give they were done with the situation, and no more time would be able to be spent on it. They're, you know, So, summer of 1974, we are getting to where people are starting to notice things. Jerry and Laura see a disembodied hand appear in the window of yeah. their house. Um, and when they, went, when they went to go see who it was, they saw no human evidence, 
that anyone had been there at all. That's creepy. Um, and then in autumn, three knocks. And you know that's a bad time. Yeah. Uh, come at the door. And Laura, because she doesn't know the rules of the trade, <laughs> went to answer the door. And no one was there. But there were wet footprints on the stoop. But only on the stoop. They weren't leading anywhere. They weren't coming from anywhere. They were just on the stoop. That's weird. As if someone had just, like, walked around only on the stoop after landing. Um, Now, Jerry contacted his friend and assistant scoutmaster and told him what was going on. And he was just like, oh, come on, Jerry, you're, you're joking. Uh, because apparently Jerry had a very good sense of humor, and his friend thought that this, that's just what's going on. Jerry's being Jerry. And then Jerry told him about the doors opening themselves and chairs moving on their own, and he was like, okay, all right, calm down, Jerry. Calm down. <laughs> You're crazy. Yeah. Um, so the Goodens, they tried to have some normalcy, uh, so they had, like, the Hallsworth over, including their uh, 14-year-old daughter, Janet, over for dinner, you know, November 21st. Now, you remember, November 21st, they also had another incident happen. Um, and this is not the same 21st. So, 21st is not a good time for them in November. Um, while they were eating, they heard the sound of breaking glass. So, they, they went to where the noise was. It was the master bedroom. The double-paned window was broken from the inside. Now, what a double-paned window is, is it's got one pane on the outside, a space of air in the middle, and then another pane of glass on the outside, or on the inside. Like our old house. Like our, yeah, like our old house. Um, and these windows, you can break one pane without breaking the other. And if you broke, it was broken from the inside, the outside pane leading to the outside was not broken. It was just the one pane. Hmm. So it was broken from the inside. And there was no one there. And then, as soon as, uh, as, soon as they notice that, guess what starts again? The banging. Oh, gosh. And it just it became more violent and frightening. So then, February 22nd, or I'm sorry, November 22nd. It's a Friday. <laughs> yeah, You know, they jumped. Right, um, apparently. Uh after dinner, the Gooden family went to the living room to relax and, you know, just kind of spend family time together. Laura sat in her chair, Jerry sat in his recliner, and Marcy did not take up her usual spot but went to the floor to work on a puzzle. Very Ryan-like. Yes. All was well in the home until it wasn't. Simultaneously, the family turned their head to look at the master bedroom. There were unexplained noises coming from that direction. It was not the bangings, and it startled them. Interesting. Yeah. Um, with Jerry in the lead, the family went to the noise to investigate. See, I say, I think in my mind, I wouldn't investigate, but I would. You probably would have to. I mean... Or I would make you. Yeah, you just send me. <laughs> That's what you did when we had the whole closet yeah. incident. You made me get out of bed to go look like you're not got that pregnant strength but all right whatever but um, i can't run <laughs> <laughs> when they entered the room they found the shade had been rolled up and the curtain was lying on the floor the window was closed so that you know that rolled out a breeze coming through the house so they fixed the disarray and started to head out the room but before they could cross the threshold 
the events played out again. And this time they saw it. The curtain flew off the wall, taking, you know, taking the rod and everything with it. And then the shade pulled down and flipped back up <laughs> like a nice. cartoon. So, uh, I'd have to leave and go stay at a hotel. Yep. Yeah, right. Well, they didn't. The parents decide to just leave things the way they were. Um, they, they weren't going to fix it this time. It was bizarre, but, but you know, that was kind of quickly what, what was yeah. happening, you know, bizarre things were happening. It's, it's what it is. So, you know, I mean, at least they weren't scared, I guess. Yeah. But they go back into the living room only to have the same thing happen to the kitchen and trying to make light of things. Jerry says, well, whatever it is, it clearly doesn't like the curtains. <laughs> He said that out loud. Here, Jerry finally acknowledges that there is some sort of entity in his house. That's good. Uh, no, About time. no, no, that is, that is yeah. bad. That is, you remember, you're not supposed to acknowledge that it's there. You're supposed to ignore it because that's not, that's how you're, if you start acknowledging it, it's going to start using that as power. I guess. If that's it, I'm pretty sure that's how the hauntings go. If you I acknowledge it its existence it's you know um uh but so many people in the field would have said this is this is where you made your biggest mistake uh and they could all feel it the the mood could not lighten because things were about to kick off the oh, poundings boy. returned yeah right the poundings returned building on the loudness of the sound they tried to ignore the sounds each in their own way laura refused to get up from her chair <laughs> that would be me jerry just ignored the sound not showing fear or anxiety and marcia just she was frozen uh cross-legged on the braided rug not moving now this is the only time you see laura or i'm you see marcia have any kind of reaction to what's going on in my notes so far okay this is the only time jerry thought of the noises as his personal nemesis yeah <laughs> but one that he just he couldn't beat it, it's like that neighbor that always has better things than you right um they all described the noises as somehow intelligent and they knew that if they were right they're even more out of their depth. Once Laura turned the lights off in the house in order to go to bed, and immediately the knocking stopped. They all relaxed and went to bed, drifting to the sounds of softly falling rain. The very next day, they were not allowed any kind of reprieve. During the morning, nothing happened. Uh, and while on eggshells, the family prepared to go on a road trip to visit Jerry's cousin, but first they had to go to Mass. Um, and then they would end the day with a trip to the grocery store. Uh, they made it back home by 4.30, and little Marcia was snapping as she always did when they took car rides. Aww. Like a puppy. The dog they had acquired was kept in the backyard, and it became excited when he saw them arrive. While scoping out the home, Jerry noticed that Marcia's TV was laying face down on her bed with the cord hanging out of the back. Creepy. Now, he thought it was strange. But again, 
just picked it up and let it be? Yeah, just picked it up and let it be. He put it back on its high shelf and arranged the wires in a position that they belonged. And then he went to Laura in the kitchen, only to find himself witnessing dishes coming out of the sink and flying around the room. Nice. And then smashing two pieces on an indoor-outdoor carpet. Now, you got to imagine how hard these things are smashing right. to the floor to break on a carpet like that. To pieces. Not like just six or seven big like pieces. Chunks. or Like chunks. But like two pieces. Um so he bends down to clean up the mess, and five knives rise out of the knife block and fly across the kitchen. None of them hit Jerry. Well, that's good. And and he went over to examine the knife block. The knife block, as he's walking over, strains against the wall and seemingly freeing itself hurdles towards Jerry. And like the ninja that he is, <laughs> he throws out one hand and he catches it. Nice. The two waited to see if any if another attack was going to happen, and when nothing else happened, they went about cleaning up the mess in hopes that they could just clean it up before Marcy had a chance of seeing it. Was she still sleeping? She in the was car? still sleeping. I don't know if she was still in the car, but she was still sleeping. Um, now, while Jerry went to go get the rest of the groceries, Laura went about putting the groceries away, and then she heard something behind her turned to see that two legs of the table were lifting off the ground until it lifted so far that it turned it overturned causing laura to scream and not only did it overturn everything that was on that table flew perfect in different directions as if they had been cleared off for some heavy petting sessions oh god um someone's angry now or or you know the other one i said heavy petting you know what that is I've shown you the ways. Ew. <laughs> um, now, while Jerry... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's the wrong part of my notes. As well, the table... Jen got distracted. Yeah, well, you know, you're <laughs> distracting. Oh, no! <coughs> there we go. Um, as the table... <laughs> really? Sorry. <laughs> as the okay. table flipped, the groceries went all over the place. And before she could even attempt to understand the events that had happened... The 300-pound fridge started to slide and rise, hovering half a foot off the ground. It turned a quarter of the way in one direction and then lowered itself back onto the floor. And these got to be strong spirits oh, to be able to move oh, stuff like that. 100%. And then finally, the 23-inch square TV console, which was right next to the sink, tilted itself down and slammed fast to the floor, catching Laura's foot underneath of it and pinning it to the floor. Ugh. Jerry put things back in order. Of course. They had dinner, and then Marcy and Jerry bandaged Laura's foot and put her in the recliner. In her recliner. I love that they had dinner before they bandaged her right? foot. Like, oh no, you're fine, let's get, come on, you know you're cooking. <laughs> <laughs> you're cooking. I don't know what. I mean, I that's know, how it was back then. I, guess. I don't know why you're you're thinking you're gonna sit down. No, you need to make us dinner first. Marcy can't cook, and I'm a man. <laughs> um, he did make his own coffee, though. I uh, see. Yes, he he went in and made his own coffee, but that was the next morning. Uh, um, you're getting ahead of us. Sorry, my bad. Jerry returned to the kitchen in order to turn off the light, and he felt something moving in the dark 
around in the kitchen. Or actually, I'm sorry, he felt something dark moving around in the kitchen behind him. He heard a thud beside him to the left, and when he turned to see what it was, the table was tipped, leaning against the kitchen chairs. He put it back in position, turned the light off, he went back into the living room, living room and turned on the TV to distract from the fact that he had no idea what was going on. He was out of his depth. He had no clue what was happening. He was a fish in big water, yeah. and there was a shark in the deep that he couldn't see, but he felt. And he clearly deals with problems like I do. Yep, if, it's not, is... <laughs> if, if you don't react to it, it's not happening. Yeah, just pretend it's not there. No big deal. Um, now, Jerry, he does go back into the kitchen to make some coffee, and that went down without a hitch. He heads towards the living room when he hears screeching from behind him and then thud. The table had been flipped once again, and things did not stop there. Laura, or I'm sorry, later when they were getting ready for bed, Jerry is shaving and Laura's in, in her bed, and there's a strange noise coming from Marcia's room, uh, followed by her screams of terror. So she's freaked out. I would be too. So my earlier statement of her not showing emotion... Is gone. Yes, but it is it is a thing that that you notice later. Okay. Um, I forgot about this point. Uh, once they made it to her room and saw what was reminiscent of Laura's attack, the TV had come off the high shelf and landed directly on Marcia's ankle. Ow! Now it's a bed, so she's safe there. You know, it didn't break her ankle. It didn't even cause any serious damage. Um, Jerry checked her for injury and then put the TV back in the hallway uh, on the floor so that it couldn't fall on her again. But he knew no one was going to be sleeping that night, so they went back into the living room to start watching TV. That's his answer for everything. Right. TV, I'm pretty sure in the 60s, didn't they have a point where the TV programs weren't on anymore? I feel like there there was a mo a time where you didn't Probably. have twenty four hour TV stations. Probably. Marcia headed to the bathroom, and shortly after, they heard a strange noise coming from the bathroom and went to investigate. And the bathroom, of course, is a giant mess. Marcia has her hands on her head, protecting herself from falling objects in the bathroom. The shower crop, shower crod, the shower <laughs> rod. A uh, shower curtain rod almost hit her in the head, but she, you know, eventually it went into the tub and and rested in there. Towels flew off the rack into the tub. The curtains fell. Toiletries scattered. Shaving cream powder and all amenities of the bathroom were spread out everywhere. The caps to the toothpaste and Listerine bottles were broken off. So weird. This spirit better be coming back to clean this up. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure that's what he, he said. Oh man, I made a terrible mess. I don't even know how to do this ghosting thing. I've just been touching stuff and they've been flying right? everywhere. Um so, you know, they they stayed in the living room. Uh, when he was satisfied that Marcy was not hurt, he went into the bedroom to see what the continuing strange noises were, and when he entered, the curtains were down. And the curtains had come down in all the bedrooms. So they stayed in the living room until 3 a.m. And then they went to bed with Jerry tucking Marcia in and then getting into bed himself. Before going to bed, though, Jerry said to Laura, I hope tomorrow will be a better day. It would not be. Oh, boy. 
November 24th, 1974, Jerry walks into the kitchen and saw the same scene he saw last night. Table flipped over its end, propped up against the kitchen chairs. Uh, upon further inspection, the kitchen, he realizes, hey, the fridge has moved, and now it's blocking the door to the kitchen. That leads to the outside, where the dog is. Well, that thing just picked it up and moved it. Now, I don't know the layout of the house. Um, there was a map, but I, I didn't, like, memorize it. I wasn't trying to rob the place or anything, so I didn't see the mem- reason. True. But the, the fridge, <laughs> if I remember correctly, the fridge was close enough to the outside door that it wasn't, like, all the way across the kitchen, but it was still a decent... It's a 300-pound yeah. fridge. I don't care who you are. You're struggling with some noise to get it over there, especially if it's full food. Right. So this thing just picked it up. No problem. Made no noise. And put it in front of the door. So he goes He goes to tell his wife about the kitchen. But before he can even get the words out of his mouth, the silver crucifix and portrait, portrait of Jesus that they had on their wall that said, bless this home on it, it, they just pull themselves off of the wall, taking the nail with them. Mm. And, and, and they slammed to the floor. So... Laura starts freaking out, and Jerry's trying to console her. And then they hear a large crash in Marcia's room, and upon going in there, they discover that the large bureau that she had next to her bed crashed to the floor, and it narrowly missed her arm. And she's still sleeping. This loud noise happens. (laughs) And this child said, Oh, man. And then Laura goes into... Marcia's room to see all this and the crucifix in Marcia's room comes off the wall breaks into a million pieces and everything about the haunting starts being more intense the frequency the power the level of sound the mel sorry not malevolent (laughs) malevolent acts all increase a noise comes from the living room. Jerry races to, races to see all three recliners going from the reclined position to the upright position, to and fro, to and fro, oh, on man. back legs. And and then the, Laura points at the TV, and it's making a doorbell sound. The TV? The TV's making a doorbell sound. Not knowing what to do and feeling helpless, they call the Hoffmans and beg for help. Harold immediately enters while Mary Hoffman... Uh, calls the police. You know, he immediately goes uh, to go see what's up, and she calls the police. So then finally, the noise, finally, the noise wakes Marcia up. And she rushes to Jerry, and the family go out onto the enclosed porch to wait for the Hoffmans. Now, while they're out there, they spot Janet Holsworth. This is the daughter of John, okay. the, the cop. Um, and she was walking her dog. Jerry was about to call out for when Laura screams. Laura is screaming because the green couch that's out on the porch has lifted a good six inches off the ground and then continued to rise as the Goodens just looked at it in horror. And then it slammed down to the ground, spilling all the groceries that were on it that Jerry had left from the night before, and a 50-pound bag of dog food. And it spills it all over the floor. John... Or, I'm sorry, Jerry yells for Janet to go get her dad. And she complies. 
John comes out in his pajamas, throwing on a jacket over top of it, over top of him. Uh, and then he just, you know, he made it to the house. He tells the Goodins stay on the porch while he went in. He goes in, sees the disarray around the house, pulls out a cigarette, and lights it, and then proceeds to investigate further. Um, he's just looking at the the destructive damage that this force has done, and they tell him, you know, there's something evil in our house. They tell him. There is something, there is an evil force in our house. Um, so, he comes back out and says, what the heck happened? He doesn't understand. Was this a fight? Was this a, 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 a robber? What, what is this that I am seeing? So, Jerry and John go into the house. John is is being followed by Jerry, and and then you know he suddenly sound uh, Jerry suddenly shouts the TV, and John looks and notices that the TV is rotated about thirty degrees or thirty five degrees out of position, so he walks over, returns it to the normal position, but as he's walking away, the TV rotates back to to where it had been, so he goes back to return it again, and then all three recliners resume the action that they were doing of flipping up and down, flipping up and down, flipping That's up and horrible. down, flipping down. Oh, this ghost is on crack. Something. So he looks at everything and just says to himself, this looks like a poltergeist. This looks like something I can't deal with. And at that moment that he thinks that to himself, the fridge jumped two feet, hitting John in the elbow. So John immediately went to the phone and said, uh, 911, what's your emergency? Yeah, I've got some people uh, in this house, and it's a haunted house. The fridge just attacked me. It hit me in the elbow. I don't know if I'll ever be able to play tennis again. I am scared. So they put the call out, and at this time, Harold arrives, and he just immediately he goes to the family, and, and they bring him up to speed on, on what's been going on. And then two more cops... Uh, who were on a routine patrol come to the house uh, and they're told, you know, report back on the landline what's going on so that they we can keep the matter private because maybe it's not something. Right. That they, um, so when they arrive, Laura, crying and exhausted, as anybody would be, I'm sure. Give me a second. You talk for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a sip here. Well, I don't know what to talk about. I'm listening to you tell a story. Well, I needed I needed a drink. That's all. Okay. Um. So she leads them to the master bedroom, which was still in disarray. And they they told her, you know, whoever did this damage, they're not they're not going to be coming back. And she said, you don't you don't understand. This is always happening. Jerry then explained about the constant bangings back in November, about how the situation had progressed up until this point of the police arriving. Uh, one of the officers, Officer Tomek, went over to the TV and set it right side up, but less than a minute later it fell over again. And then he picked it back up and put it uh, where the wooden bureau normally was. Um, and uh, the TV began to float off the off of its resting place, hung in midair, and then, you know, Tomac went over there and he was like, "What the crap?" He starts in, uh, examining it to see what was holding the TV up, but nothing was. Um, 
And then as he watched, the TV started swinging right to the left like a pendulum. Ooh. Uh, and, you know, it was slow at first, but then over time it picked up speed. And then slowly it stopped, turned 45 degrees, and set itself down where the officer had put it. Creepy. I, I just love the idea of this isn't a demon, this isn't a poltergeist, this is just a jerk who's like, Get out of my house! Pretty much. Look what I can do to your TV! Get out! Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Jerry said that every time something was put down, it always was off of... It wasn't in the same position. It was always askew. And he said that maybe, maybe that was whatever the force was leaving its mark on the action true saying this is i did this this is how you know i did this how much you want to bet jack the bee is asleep i bet he is i, I was thinking that yeah too. he's probably asleep um I if I can peek. careful oh, is yeah. he yeah is he out he's out oh yeah all right. Little baby. By that time, more officers came. The po the four policemen spoke together, and they were still under the impression that this had to be a hoax. Now, this dude just checked to see if anything was touching that TV. It wasn't, but he said, yep, yeah, nope, this must be a hoax. Yeah. But as they were talking, one officer saw the, fr the fridge lift off the ground half a foot. And then he said, look at that. And after examining the fridge, the basement, the officers reconvened in the living room. And while discussing the emotional state of the family, the officers noticed that Marcia had no reaction to the events that were happening around her, which was odd for a girl her age. Now, this is much more intense than anything that she has seen before. This is serious. It, yeah. People are there. And she's like, I mean, whatever. Um... Now, Jerry told the cops that the family was just, you know, they were just becoming used to the activity, but this morning had been just a very serious attack. Tomac had no ex explanation for anything that he had seen. Um, you know, he had seen The Exorcist months beforehand, and certain aspects of it came to his mind as he was looking for evidence of anything normal to explain the events. And eventually he just asked himself, could this be something paranormal? You know, he wasn't a believer in that. You know, he was a non-believer of, of paranormal events, but he just, he didn't have anything. There was nothing to explain what he was seeing. There was no evidence of a hoax, nor was there any rational explanation. It was obvious that there was no faking these events that he had seen, these incidents. Not to mention that the events were occurring in every room while the Goodens were speaking to the police. So they were talking to the police and it was happening all around them. Um, and then a loud noise came from Marcia's room and Jerry and Tomek rushed and saw that the bureau had tipped over and rested against her closet doors, which was across her room. Nice. Or not across, like I'm a kindergartner. <laughs> they were just across her room. No one had been in the room and now the police were starting to get nervous. They're like, okay, see, we can't, we can't shoot anything here. Right. There's, there's nothing. What's wrong? Nothing. Um. So, you can't shoot what you can't see. Right. So the four officers, they meet in the hallway and start talking about what they could do, if anything, to help. And then their attention's brought to a wooden cross that was fastened to the wall because it started swinging like the TV, like a pendulum. Or like the hands of a clock because it's yeah. still fastened to the wall. So, you know, just kind of like this and then like that and then, you know. Um, but then... 
it springs itself off of the wall and hits Officer Leroy Lawson right in the chest. And Leroy Lawson said, that's it. I'm out of here. And he, As he should. Yeah, and he slowly backed away out of the house and noped his way all the way to the <laughs> car. And once he got in the car, he locked the door. Because everybody knows ghosts don't go through right? locked doors. <laughs> so then the police called the fire department and 10 firemen came to the house in three units. And Jerry ran through the events yet again. However, he was met with disbelief. Of course. Of course. Laura asked Assistant Chief McKenna to remove the plastic cherubs from the wall because they were heavy and would likely hurt someone if they started flying around the room as objects had been doing. Uh, as Jerry continued to recount the events, Assistant Chief Messina saw the TV flop over on the floor. No one was around to cause the TV to fall over. But before he could tell anyone what had happened, something happened in the kitchen that took everybody's attention. Now we're gonna stop right there for a second and talk about Ted Holsworth, who I do not know if he's related to John, but he was a 46-year-old trucker, and he was hardened by the world. So this kind of stuff, not anything to him. Uh, he honestly thought he had seen and heard everything up until this day. He says that this is the worst thing that he'd ever witnessed. Um, he was comforting Jerry, uh, Focused his and he fo and then Jerry focused his ears on listening and said, "You know, there it goes again." And Jerry said, "But what are you talking about?" Or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Ted said, "What do you what are you talking about there? What goes again?" And then the pla the pink plastic roses in a white vase on top of the TV started to move around in the vase. Jerry knew the routine and knew the effect it had on him. His chest began to have a, he a heavy feeling. There were tingling all over his arm he could smell sulfur and whatever ozone smells like because that's the scent he had sulfur and ozone um came wafting to his senses and the standalone tv slowly laid itself down on the ground gently and this created terror in ted's heart if it had been if it had been tipped over and gravity had just taken it that would have been one thing but something Invisible deliberately put the TV on the ground gently. Something lowered the yeah. TV. Jerry finally emotionally stated, everything is coming apart. Not only were the events inside the house driving them to madness, but a crowd had started forming outside with people barging into the house. One woman told them to put a bowl of vinegar into each room. And this is a real deal thing not like real deal i don't know that it's actually a working uh power tool I don't know. but i did find an ingredient for magical disinfectant uh and when i say magical i mean magic all right it's four four thieves vinegar main ingredients now this is supposed to have a adverse effect on negative energy and by adverse i mean it's supposed to get rid of the uh, right. negative energy um two tablespoons of fresh lavender chopped two tablespoons of fresh rosemary chopped two tablespoons of fresh mint chopped all these are chopped except for the garlic uh two tablespoons of fresh sage two tablespoons of thyme or thyme thyme um four cloves of garlic should be peeled and crushed 
two tablespoons of dried wormwood, three whole cloves crushed, half a teaspoon of organic peppercorns, 16 ounce raw apple cider vinegar. If you are making this to use as a cleansing disinfectant spray, you can still use white distilled vinegar instead. Um, now I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go over the uh, directions, but they they do want you to shake it well. They want you to make sure you get them ingredients shaken, not stirred, and then you're supposed to shake and place in a cool dark area for two to six weeks because everybody knows that's how long it takes for a right? ghost to leave. Why can't you just put it in a spray bottle and just spray it around? Well, see, that's what I thought they were doing, but apparently not. Um, so. But this is not what was suggested. But in case you need some sort of magic disinfectant, here you go. Uh, but there were other suggestions, but authorities told people to leave, which they did reluctantly. At this point, Deputy Chief, uh, Deputy Fire Chief, the Deputy Chief, oh my goodness, the Deputy <laughs> Fire Chief got involved. His name is Zwieline. But, because I can't pronounce that name, uh, and I don't want to try and pronounce that name for the rest of this time, uh, he is going to be called Frank. Much easier. Well, that is his first name. I don't know what his parents were doing with that last name, but Frank is who we're going with. Now, Frank quickly came to the realization that the type of events that were happening in the house were out of his realm of expertise. So... He called the firehouse chaplain, a priest named Doyle, about the events, and he said, I am not drunk, but this <laughs> is what is happening here, Father. And then he proceeded to tell him about the, you know, just a minimal account of the events at the house. And Doyle agreed to come over and do what he could for the family. And while Frank was out picking Doyle up, Marcia was sitting in her green recliner when it started to rapidly recline <laughs> and then sit upright. I shouldn't laugh. But <laughs> but the the, I'll bet. In it I know, I know, happening. I know. As soon as I heard it, I was like, oh man, I bet she looked ridiculous. Because right? every time it happens in The Exorcist, it cracks me up. Yeah. When she's flopping down on the bed and sitting back up, right? like, oh man. Um,. So then it starts to rise and it quickly goes towards the ceiling and she is still in it. She is still in this chair. And then it starts to like, kind of thing. Um, oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. She, I'm sorry. That part hasn't happened yet. My bad. What, the noise? No, no, no. The, uh, <laughs> the rising, it didn't rise. It just <coughs> rapidly. So she, she finally is able to get off this, off the chair and Laura wept hysterically while saying evil spirits are trying to kill us so jerry takes marcia into the kitchen as soon as they went into the kitchen a chair flew back away from the table and then landed on its side dishes leapt out of the drying rack and the rack tried to slide off the counter but jerry because he is a ninja as proven with the yeah. knife block catch was able to stop it from falling only Marcia and Jerry were in the kitchen. Several police officers went to examine the recliner, trying to force it into the upright position, but they couldn't. It was at this point that Frank and Doyle had returned. Uh, and when he arrived at the house, he knew immediately something was wrong. Uh, he could see that there was something dark and wrong inside the house. So he was immediately, you know, he was immediately told what had happened with the recliner and he sat in it and tried to use all 230 pounds of his body 
to force that chair back into position, but couldn't. Could not do it. He described a heaviness overtaking him and said it was like a thick, uh, debilitating cloud that he was feeling. Uh, And so he was sure that there was an evil presence uh, that had made its home among the family. Uh, He decided to perform a standard house blessing. He took a seat in the recliner next to Officer Tomek, opened his leather priest kit, which contained a rosary, holy water, and a small Bible. He placed the water on the nearby end table and opened his Bible. Uh, Once he had reached the chosen passages, he reached for the vial, and as 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 his hand came uh, within a foot of the water, it tipped over, becoming just out of reach. He stood the vial back up and went to repeat his actions, and the vial fell over again. And with that, he put his tools away. He was not going to do this because he was sure that if he tried, he would just aggravate the situation with a half measure. He went to the phone and called Alphonse Tribo an exorcist. I'm guessing Alphonse Tribo did not come immediately because he does not appear in this story yet. Um, Emergency services came to the house, ushered a begrudging Laura to the hospital in order to have her foot examined. Jerry's brother Edmund came to the back door and he heard officers discussing a noise that they were hearing it's coming from the cat it's saying bye bye and at this time marcia had come downstairs with a talking cat over his shoulder or after over her shoulder um and one cop just decided to screw with the other cop um i thought this was supposed to be a toy so i put that in the notes but this is a real cat that's saying bye bye and this officer said Where'd the cat come from? I uh, thought they had a dog. They had a dog in the backyard. I'm guessing they got a cat early on, or a little bit later. I'm not sure, but, it, it, you know, it's there. She only had bears. So, um, you know, the cat's a thing. But, so, a cop, seeing a cat talk, his first, this, this is great. I hope this man had a child. I hope this man had a child. Because he, he <laughs> went over to her and said, tell the, tell the cat uh, that this officer's name is Frank. <laughs> or his brother's name is Frank or something like that. Nice. And uh, he he went over and they start talking and the dude says, well, what's his name? Cover your badge. And he covered his badge and he said, your name's Frank. And the, it freaked the cop out. Awesome. But Laura, or I'm sorry, Marcia was so happy that someone had related to her as a child. So she was like, yes, <laughs> finally, I have it. Um, and then... Uh, Mary Pascarella arrived to lend help where she could. She was a librarian by trade, but also worked at the Psychic Research Center at Dixell uh, Avenue in New Haven. And here soon is where um, the Warrens will get involved and we will take a respite. Okay. Um, Her theory was that this poltergeist was using Marcia as a conduit for its power, and she wanted to test Marcia's psychic powers. She took her to the master bedroom in order to isolate her from the hustle and bustle of the main living room. She took out a bottle of alcohol, rubbing alcohol. She wasn't like, yo, let me get this girl lit first. Uh, And put it on a table and told Marcia to focus her mind, and she'd be able to move it without having to touch it. Marcia tried. It didn't work. You can't really expect an 11-year-old child to right. focus. But, you know, she said, do it again. 
And Marcia just quickly grew bored and frustrated. And then the woman, she wanted to go do something else. And the woman said, no, you got to go. You got to try and do this. Uh, when she became insistent, Marcia grabbed the bottle, threw it, and left. She was like, screw you. I'm not doing this anymore. Well, I'm ready. I, I got other stuff I need to do. Um, Jerry's brother and wife offered to take Marcia out to lunch and get her out of the house so she could relax and not deal with the hauntings and everything else that was happening. So they went to Burger King and Marcia was happy to be out of the house and eating at one of her favorite restaurants. They talked about where she would like to eat, what she would like to do, anything and everything that they could to avoid talking about what was happening inside the house. They're and with that, them. yeah, right. And with that, ladies and germs, I would like to thank you for listening to part one of the Lindley Street Haunting. I know it went on a little bit long, but, uh, you know, it's a real interesting case. Um, even without the Warrens involved, it is weird. So yeah. thank you for listening. We really do appreciate it. Stay oppressed, stay obsessed, and possessed. And really think about giving uh, Olive Miller, reaching out to Olive Miller. Again, that address is 1215 Lee Street, Charlottesville, Charlottesville Virginia. Uh, 22903 is the zip code, I believe. I think so. At the UVA Medical Center. Uh, her and name's, she really likes stuffed animals. And she really likes stuffed animals. And to draw. So if you have any care packages, uh, care package ideas, or if you'd like to donate at GoFundMe um, for Olive Miller Relief, uh, the family would really appreciate that. So thank you for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode, and please subscribe to our Patreon so you can hear about the origins of fairies, because I bet it's going to be a fun episode. Yes. That being said, good night, and don't let anything grab your feet.